Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 203, and today's guest is Paul English, co-founder and CTO of Lola.com and Serial Entrepreneur. Well, I'm really excited about this episode because Paul is my first repeat guest on the podcast. I interviewed him about two and a half years ago for episode 37, and during that conversation, we spent a lot of time talking about his background and all the details on some of his companies like Kayak and Lola.com. Well, this time around, we took a slightly different approach. We, of course, caught up on Lola.com, which, as you may remember, is focused on helping companies with business travel. We talk about the effects of the pandemic, where business trips booked on Lola.com were down 97%. But the real story here is the resiliency of the team. Not only did the team fight against an incredibly tough situation, but they launched a major new product called Lola Spend and expanded their product offering and value for finance teams at companies. We also talk about his latest side product that he's been working on called Moonbeam, which is a new podcast player. Moonbeam is the easiest way to discover great new podcast content. It's almost like a a TikTok for podcasts. Plus, it has additional features that makes it unique in terms of growing an audience, monetization, and other cool features. But then where we really spend a lot of our time is talking about hiring, which I was particularly excited about because he is known as a master in his field for his hiring practices. We talk about his seven-day rule, which has been written about many, many times. It is the time frame and speed of his process from when he first hears about a candidate to making an offer. He talks about how to qualify and hire talent for remote teams, his thoughts on building out initial teams within engineering and design, what job seekers should be thinking about before joining a company, and when is the right time to bring in a company's first recruiter. Okay, quick side note, are you hiring? If the answer is yes, then you need to add a subscription to VentureFizz for your company. It includes a company profile page, which is perfect for employment branding. You'll have unlimited postings to our popular job board, access to our exclusive content series, which tells the story of your company, people, and culture, plus ongoing promotional support. Send an email to info at VentureFizz.com for more details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Paul. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Great to see you again. Yeah, this is the first time I've done uh, like episode two, like a continuation conversation from the original recording we did was episode 37. It was over two years ago and uh, we had a lot to talk about, you know, so anyone who wants to hear the background story of Paul's many companies he started, including Kayak, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Lola.com today, but we talked a little bit of the founding story there. So that's stuff you need to listen to and the episode 37 we did about two years ago. Uh, but today we're recording this. Uh, you know, it's been a crazy 2020 with the pandemic. And, um, you know, we've been through multiple cycles of economic ups and downs and, you know, dot com and uh, economic collapses. So building companies are, it's, it's hard, right? Regardless of economic conditions. But as an entrepreneur, like, what, like, how do you think about things? Like, how do you prepare? For the unexpected and we're going to talk about lola.com and kind of the unexpected there shortly but how do you just in general principles prepare for that yeah it's tough i mean i've lived through a few um big economic downturns so first of all it was 9 11 and that really um stopped travel for a long time i wasn't in the travel business then but i mean that certainly had a big impact on that industry there was economic downturn 2000 well let me see there was the dot-com bust. i guess that was around 2000 it was 9-11, there was the economic downturn in 2008, and now the pandemic, which has really been the most severe. 
of anything I've ever lived through. And I don't know that you can prepare for this. Like one thing I'd like to say to entrepreneurs, make sure you have enough cash in the bank that you can ride through if suddenly you have a huge revenue hit. But it's tough to do that, to go out to VC and say, I want to raise enough money to staff a team of 10 people for a year and a half or two years, but I want an additional amount in case. Like you can't actually ask for that. So I think some companies are going to fail when things like this happen and the strongest companies will find a way to, to pivot and survive. Yeah, and that's so set stage. So Lola.com, um, you know, I was going through some of your press releases. You know, there was such great anticipation for 2020, uh, hyper growth. You guys had a record uh, 2019. Um, I think your growth was over a thousand percent. It was like 1146 is what the press release said. So, 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 so what were, you know, kind of that look, looking ahead to 2020 and then take us through, you know, February through April and, and what occurred. Yeah. 2019 really was an amazing year for us. Um, in 2018. So Lola does business travel. And the basic idea is I spent 10 years at kayak doing consumer travel and at Lola. Now I wanted to figure out how to see if we can simplify business travel. And 2018, we started building tools for not just the traveler to search and book their own travel, but for the travel manager and the finance people to manage travel as an expense. And the biggest thing we learned in 2019 that led us to a really rapid growth rate is selling into the CFO. And because CFO for small, mid-sized businesses sees travel as an expense, and we go to them and say, we guarantee you we can reduce expense, and we can also dramatically reduce the paperwork and any time associated with managing travel. And that really resonated, and that did quite well for us in 2019. 2020, we're expecting to be a really big year, but then when um, things happened in February and March, travel basically ground to a halt. So we were lucky that we had raised a lot of money in the year prior, so we have enough cash in the bank to ride us through, I think we have about another year and a half right now. And um, we also had begun, because we were selling so successfully to CFOs in 2019, we had started asking them about how else they think about travel. And when they really talk about travel and expense together, we started thinking about maybe we should do something in the expense space. So we did a bunch of research last summer, last fall. And then when the pandemic happened, we basically really accelerated building the expense product, which we released um, just a few weeks ago now. Which, you know, the perseverance, right? Which I've, I'm grateful that I'm aligned with the tech industry because it, it did, you know, overcome a lot of the obstacles along the way. But it's a whole different level if you're building a product that is focused on travel, hospitality, you know, restaurants, you know, those industries were just unfortunately just devastated. So, um, you know, I, I think it says a lot about the Lola.com team and their ability to persevere. And, you know, there was a, um, Mike Volpe wrote a post about the new product launch and he's like, we had a decision to either fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we decided to fight, right? I love that. Like that just gets me going. Right. So, uh, but, but the, as you highlighted, this has been a crazy, insane, the hardest definitely year I think any of our generation has ever experienced. And when travel comes to a grinding halt at down 97% is what I think I read for business travel. What were those days like? It must've been just like deer in headlights. It was brutal. I mean, the most difficult thing is we, like every other travel company in the world did, did a layoff back in March. We saw the things going to, where the travel is going to come to a halt. We expected this is going to take a year. Uh, or more. And so we did a very painful layoff for about a third of our staff. 
Uh, we protected engineering, so we wanted to keep innovating and building new products. So there wasn't much change in the engineering team, but we did a big layoff in sales and marketing and customer support because it made no sense of salespeople selling into travel if no one was traveling. But, um, you know, we're pretty optimistic about the new product. We only released it a few weeks ago. The companies that are the early adopters have really been sending us over the top uh, feedback about just how this has made things a lot easier for them. So, so what is the, the core problem that the new expense product is solving? I mean, the simplest way for me to explain it is pre-Lola, one of the most painful things that finance teams deal with is the whole expense support thing. Because if they can't see what you've been spending in your personal card, and if you don't submit your expense support for a month or two months or longer after the quarter ends, it's hard for finance to close the books. And there's just this painful back and forth that goes between finance and the person traveling about get your expense support in, get your expense support in, because we need to see how it's going to impact our finances. And also, there's just no judgment about are people spending money on the right things? They're going to expense something that you wouldn't approve otherwise. And when you have a product like Lola, which is end-to-end, and everything comes from a credit card to software for the travel that's built into our Lola app, to software for the finance person, it gives the finance person real-time up-to-the-minute view into what's being spent. And if the user simply, at the time of swipe of the card, they take a picture of the receipt and answer a couple of questions about which budget this is going to be attached to, there's no expense for it at all. So we eliminate a major hassle for the employee and then also for the finance team. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Expense reports are just such a mess. Yeah. Uh, so to eliminate that agony of submitting it, creating it, because it's always like a last minute, oh, I got to do my expense report type of thing, or forgetting and trying to hunt down receipts. Uh, so it's so Lola Spend is the name of the new product. That's right. And what I thought was interesting is, so this is, you made the decision to keep this core product free, right? So that that's, that's a unique offering. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're, the way we make money on a spend product is because it's an actual card that comes with the product, we get a small percentage of every transaction. It's not huge, but um, we think it's enough in the long term that as the business scales, it'll more than cover our costs. Yeah, that makes sense. Got it. So what's the uh, size of the company now and you know, kind of what's, what's the outlook heading into uh, next year? I think we have about 67 employees right now. Um, most of that is in engineering, product, and design. We have a very small commercial team, and we have a we still have a customer service team which does twenty four seven. But right now, when we had a board meeting recently, and we're talking about twenty twenty one, and the board is confident that travel is definitely definitely coming back. I mean, people are pretty bullish about the vaccines that are out right now. There's two, as you know, that are um, coming out imminently this month, and there's more in the works. So now it's just a matter of um, how quickly those vaccines can get rolled out. But the stock market has been bullish. I mean, people think business is going to come back. It might take another six months, but it's definitely going to come back in 2021. And that'll be really good for us. Then we'll start selling in again to the CFOs about helping manage travel. And so hopefully we'll have these two products, a spend and expense product in the travel product. And then we'll be able to raise another round of financing, say, a year from now. And then um, just keep building out that travel and expense team. So um, one thing I discovered, so uh, Lolo.com's name of the company, which could have been the name of Kayak. 
right? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Found that out, so. Yeah, so when we incorporated Kite back in 2004, we incorporated it as Travel Search Company, Inc., knowing we're going to try to find a brandable name, but we just had to put something down in the corporation papers. We had a really great brand agency in New York and spent, I think, a couple months with them on what's the brand identity of Kayak, what do we want to be known for, and how are we going to market? And that came out of that, what word we want to use is the mark. And we came up with five finalists. Um, they were from going from number five to number one. Hive was the fifth choice, which probably would have been a terrible name. I think Rice was the fourth choice because it's ubiquitous and simple and, and global. Third choice was Cake, because who doesn't like cake? Second <laughs> choice was Kayak. And the first choice, actually, what we wanted to call Kayak back in 2004 was Lola. So we looked into it, and we couldn't afford the domain name. It was, like, very, very expensive. It was owned by a um, fashion company that had been defunct. But this time around, so when you call it Kayak, that obviously worked out really well. But this time for this company, I said, I don't care if it costs a lot. I really, really honestly like that name. So I'm just going to go buy it. We spent a lot of money, but the name has worked well for us. And I think hopefully in the long term, that'll be a really good investment. That's awesome. Well, you are, you know, the definition of a serial entrepreneur. And you're always working on multiple things, not just one, one lane at a time. So um, one of the most recent projects is Moonbeam. So what's Moonbeam? Yeah, Moonbeam is yet another podcast player. And there are a lot of players out there. I think most people use the Apple Player or um, Spotify. I think are the two most common, but there's dozens and dozens of other podcast players out there. I listen to podcasts every night. Um, it's probably bad for my reading because I used to read every night on the Kindle, but for some reason in the last year, I started to listen to podcasts as well uh, or in, instead of reading. But there's just a couple things I really wanted in the player that um, I haven't seen before. One of them is the whole discovery problem. We were talking, you and I were talking a minute ago about the Netflix problem when you're, you're sitting on the couch watching TV. I've had the same thing with the podcast where I have my regular shows I subscribe to, but sometimes I want to discover new content and I haven't found good ways to do that on Spotify or the Apple player. So the idea for Moonbeam, the initial idea is we have this feature, we call it Beam. And you basically, it's just one screen. You answer three questions. You pick a topic. So I pick books. You want to, if you want to listen to podcasts about books, you pick duration. I actually like picking really short podcasts where people just give a summary of sort of book of the week. Or um, I've recently discovered a, um, a poetry podcast through this. That's actually pretty amazing. So you pick um, topic, let's say books, pick duration, say 10 minutes, and then you choose, do you want to find a popular podcast or an obscure one? And sometimes based on your mood, it's really fun to try obscure, but then you hit beam and we, I don't want to say randomly, but we pick a podcast we think you will like, and then we watch your behavior over time and users like you. And we're building a machine learning platform to try to find content that fits your listening style on Moonbeam. So the idea is and immediately deliver content to you, audio. And then when that clip is done, it just picks another one and another one and another one. And you, if you don't like a particular show or episode, you hit next and skip to the next one. But it's a really fun way to surf audio content by actually listening to audio. So I think the comparison would be like a TikTok for podcast content. Absolutely. That's a great analysis. I am obsessed with TikTok <laughs> and um, a lot of people don't get it, but the thing that's cool about TikTok is their AI, their machine learning, where initially you use TikTok and it shows you like 
you know, girls dancing on music, whatever, which is great. But um, the more you use it, the more it, it tries different things and it figures out what topics you like. And, you know, a couple interesting things about uh, TikTok for me is TikTok has discovered that, like, I really like dogs and I've never owned dogs. My kids actually both have dogs right now. But for some reason, I'm obsessed with dog videos. There's some really funny dog videos on TikTok. And if I just have 10 minutes free during the day, I just start up TikTok and it delivers really cool content to me. And we're trying to do it with Moonbeam is have a similar uh, way of doing that. So TikTok doesn't ask you questions, it just shows you a video. And if you swipe up, if you don't like it. So Moonbeam is a basic idea. We deliver content to you. If you don't like it immediately or 10 seconds in or two minutes in, you hit next, next, next. And based on your behavior, we deliver better and better podcast content to you. Yeah. I mean, the recommendation piece you talked about, you know, Netflix doesn't really nail it. The one that does nail it is YouTube. You know, yeah. when, I, when I hit YouTube, it'll just show me a sea of things. And I just automatically get sucked down a rabbit hole of um, entrepreneurship conversations, golf videos, because I'm trying to improve my golf game. Uh, 80s hair bands, like old concert footage. And like when Eddie Van Halen passed away, unfortunately, like I just started watching some old Van Halen concerts from like the late 80s, just amazing stuff to watch him. And then um, uh, Saturday Night Live skits. <laughs> so it's just like, it just knows what I like. And it's, it's just, and it discovers so much that I would never probably find. So yeah, YouTube is amazing for music. I mean, I read recently YouTube is the number two search engine in the world. If you say Google's number one, YouTube, people use that as a search for how to how to do things to find content. I love it for music. Uh, my YouTube homepage right now is surfacing a lot of chess videos, which is interesting. And I don't know if because of Queen's Gambit, they're trying that with everyone to see who they can get to do that. But um, that's been fascinating to me. I never wa imagined I would watch a chess game before, but YouTube's delivering some really good content, actually. And I've actually gone onto Twitch also to see some live chess games, which has actually been pretty fun. Hmm. That's very interesting. So with Moonbeam, now there's a, you know, there's an opportunity for podcasters to receive some money, right? So there's a... Yeah, so there's really two main features of Moonbeam. The, the, the initial one is this Beam feature. We're going to try to deliver content to you and right. find really compelling content. The second thing we want to do is let you interact with the podcast host. We do that in a few ways. One, we let you join an email list around a podcast. So let's say you like, um, I don't know, Planet Money on NPR. If you want to get email updates from them about upcoming shows or behind the scenes, with one click in Moonbeam, you can join that email list. The second thing is we have um, emoticons. So you can give feedback to the host about at this point in the podcast, two minutes and 30 seconds, and you thought something they said was particularly funny or sad or uh, something you really love or dear, you know, provocative, you just click a button and that sends feedback that the podcast host can then recall from our host console. And then the third feature as far as interact with the host is you can tip a podcast host, let's say a dollar, if you're particularly inspired by their episode. And that's actually the way we anticipate supporting the development of Moonbeam because we'll take a small cut of that tip. Right, which is uh, you know how email newsletters are now starting to monetize, right? So it's a similar philosophy there. That's right. Yeah, perfect. Now, how does the the join email list feature work? Now, as a you know host of a podcast, like how does that operate? Yeah. So what it does is, if you go to the website Moonbeam.fm, as a podcast host you have to claim your podcast. You, you go to Moving by Family, type Venture Fizz. Yep. We'll show you the podcast. And then we actually read your RSS feed. And most podcast software 
allows you in your RSS feed to put an email address associated with the show. So we'll look up the RSS feed for Venture Fizz. We'll see if you did register an email address with you. And then we say, confirm that's your email. We send an email to that address. If you click it, then we know that you actually are the owner of VentureFizz. Then when you log into moonbeam.fm on the website, you can download a CSV of all the emails that have been signed up. And you can also uh, get a monthly transfer of any tips collected into your bank account. Got it. Okay. Well, I will be setting that up today then. <laughs> great. great. Uh, so, so, you know, I think the last podcast we talked about how you just are constantly like coming up with ideas. Um, how do you decide which ideas to tackle like this particular one and who's involved? Who else is involved with Moonbeam? Yeah. So Moonbeam was named after my very good friend, Youngmi Moon, who's a professor at HBS and she was on my board for years at Lola. She's just an amazing dynamic um, professor. I think people told me she's the most popular professor at HBS. She also has a really fun, fun podcast called After Hours, which sounds really boring. It's three HBS professors just talking about shit, just random topics. But the three professors in particular are just really fun, interesting people. And I went to Young Me with this idea. We kind of brainstormed a bit about it. And we end up coming up with this name based on her name. And um, so she's been an advisor to us. And then I have a designer in New York named Chris Sweet. I have um, a young product manager who's a student at Northeastern named Eliana Berger. And then I have a development team uh, offshore in Pakistan. And this is something I work with on the weekends. I mean, I, I do often have little side projects. I guess you'd say I'm pretty ADD that I'm interested in everything. At Kayak, for example, I started Get Human, which is a site which gets millions of uh, users every month. That's a very profitable company right now that I created while I was at Kayak. I also created an um, online health platform for developing countries while I was at Kayak, and that's become very, really popular. But typically the way I handle my side projects is, you know, Monday, Friday, nine to five, I'm pretty heads down on the day job but sometimes on nights and weekends when I explore these side projects. And you're always, it seems like you're always looking like you're discovering problems through your own, you know, kind of experiences, not sitting around on a weekend saying, what problems should I solve? You know, what, you know, cause it's yeah. like, so get human has scaled yet. That was, you know, some challenges your, your dad was having. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Most of, most of my startups, I've done five like full on, startups. Uh, the last four have been successful. We'll hopefully will be successful. And I've done a number of side projects, but with each one, it did start from a problem that I had personally. And I lecture at um, MIT and a couple of the places on entrepreneurship. And my biggest lesson to entrepreneurs is like, I'm also a pretty active angel investor. I think I've invested in about 50 startups. And when I invest, there's three things I look at. 70% of my decision is who are the founders? Are they aggressive in good ways? You know, competitive, team-oriented, collaborative, charismatic, compelling, ethical, um, have some humility. And if they check all those boxes, I tend to want to write them a check, independent of what they're doing. But the second thing I look at is what problem they're attacking. Is it a big problem? Does it resonate with me? Is it an area that I think is growing with a lot of change? Do I have any conflicts? Like I'm invested in something, I already solved the problem. And then 10% of my decision is, and what are you working on? And when I coach entrepreneurs, typically I say, identification of the problem 
is actually more important than the specifics of what your solution is. Because most tech companies fail, well, either there's like a founder implosion or the team ends up hitting each other, or not because their tech doesn't work, it's because they build technology for problem that no one actually cares about. And so to me, the biggest lesson to entrepreneur is making sure that this is a problem that a lot of people have. And my startups have all been born out of a problem either that I've had or someone close to me has had. Yeah. And some of the you know great guests I've had on this podcast, the more successful ones spent a lot of time upfront identifying the problem before going to build the solution. That's right. Yeah. And making sure that companies will pay to solve that problem too. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Important to get paid. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Now, something else that you are also uh, well known for is is your hiring practices. So, uh, one of these is the seven day rule. So, what's the the, the seven day rule that uh, you've written about and talked about a lot? Yeah, it's a little bit crazy. Um, most people don't believe me that I do this or try to do this with each of my companies. But from the very first time you hear about a candidate's name, and you you'll say to someone, let's say you think about hiring someone on your marketing team. And be having lunch with a friend or a contact, and they'll say, "Who's the best marketing person you ever work with?" And they say, "Oh, this is a woman I work with back at HubSpot or whatever." And like immediately, as I identify a candidate, like the clock starts ticking, and I get really competitive. And I think I'm gonna get a meeting with this person, and I'll ask them for an intro, or I'll kind of hunt down the person myself on LinkedIn or wherever, convince them to meet me. And I'll often say, "Just pick a Starbucks near you." I want to make it convenient for the candidate because a lot of times the people I'm recruiting aren't people that are looking for jobs or people that are productive and happy in their current jobs. But if that Starbucks meeting goes really well and we connect, I convince them to come in and meet more people on my team. And then I've trained my team on how to be really, um, you know, gregarious and fun and provocative and just make sure the candidates have a really good time in the interview while you're learning from them, but also have them learn about us. And then if that goes well, I do a bunch of background checks and I have a particular way I do background checks, but I try to get an offer literally within seven days of that very first time I hear their name. Um, so yeah, that's, that, that's the goal. We don't always meet it, but I've often been told that um, our speed catches people off guard that in the first meeting with Lola, you'll get a decision pretty quickly. Yeah. And it's, you know, you know, my background is recruiting and you want to keep a uh, steady process where there's continuous momentum. And if the candidate is excited and interested, you know, that, that momentum will carry through. So, um, yeah, it's, well, as a, you know, agency recruiter, you like to have that quick turnaround, <laughs> but obviously the, the candidate need to be ready to uh, hopefully accept an offer, but now things have changed a lot hiring, you know, in a pandemic. So like, what advice do you have, or what things have you learned of, you know, hiring people during, you know, times when people are just remote? Well, some skills are more important now than they used to be. Um, for example, like you, I'm sure I spend a lot of my days doing what you and I are doing right now, which is sitting here in front of a webcam. And you want to make sure that people are comfortable doing that and that they are um, successful at it, that they know how to participate in a meeting, that they can connect with people, that they can collaborate. And so I think we've been hiring people at Lola now that we've never met in person. We've just met them on video. And you want someone who's a really, really great communicator. You also want to make sure that people can work remote. And remote work, I think most companies have been delighted to find that, you know, one of the nice things about the pandemic, nice side effects is this whole remote thing, it actually works for most people. We've surveyed the Lola team three times. We surveyed them, I think, in 
April, June, and September about how remote is working for them. And it's getting better. I think initially people were very skeptical and nervous, but um, people found that they really like no commute and they like the comfort of home. So you want to find people that enjoy working from home, that uh, have been successful working remote, and who also are really good at Slack and email because you're not going to be able to be side by side with your whole team anymore. That Those days are gone. And even if offices do reopen, which I'm sure they will, a lot of people are going to choose to be remote permanently. So as you're recruiting, you want to make sure people have those skills. Now you've built some amazing teams, especially engineering teams and teams of designers. So like, what do you look for when you're building out that first initial core team of engineers, designers to come in and start to build build a vision? So you want someone who's built for obviously built something before. <clears throat> and it doesn't mean that they built a billion dollar company, but I actually like people that have side hustles and maybe they're working for Fidelity as an engineer, but on the side, they created a little, you know, social media app or e-commerce app or something to help themselves or a friend of theirs with something. You want someone who shows initiative that they can do something from concept to completion. And then you want to give them the skills and the resources, the teams around them that can do something maybe a bit bigger than they had worked on before. But you want someone to go from concept to completion. I think that's the most important thing for the first five or six people that you put on the team. And hiring designers is tricky because it's almost like you got to have the same aesthetic opinion of the look and feel of things. So how do you, how do you go about that? Yeah, designers? Design is the most, most difficult thing for me. I'm a big fan of Figma. We use sketch at work right now, sketchy and Figma, different people use different tools, but um, I like Figma a lot because it gives really good collaboration tools where you can comment directly on the mock at a particular location. The thing difficult about <clears throat> design, not imperfect though, is you're editing the mock, and then the designer sees it, and then you're having a Zoom meeting to discuss it. And it's not as easy as if you're projecting something on a whiteboard or up on a screen, and you're pointing at it and drawing on it with markers. I have found that there are some advantage, some designers, one of the designers who worked with really, uh, his name is Lincoln Jackson. He and I worked on Kai together for 10 years now. He's the head of design at Lowell. We work very closely every day. He told me he feels he's a little bit more prolific now that he can design without the distraction of people around him. But design is probably the one area that I miss the most of that face-to-face, out of whiteboards, kind of duking it out. So we try to do it using sketching, using Figma in the best ways possible, you know, with Slack and email and Zoom. But I don't think we've quite cracked it yet. And like, if if you're a job seeker, like, like what... What advice would you have on deciding on which company to join? Like you obviously have a lot of advice for hiring managers and things that they should be thinking about, but what, what should job seekers be thinking about when they're making a, a decision to join a company? It's similar now to what it was pre-pandemic, which is a lot of, you know, so I'll lecture at um, MIT or Stanford or different universities. And a lot of students will ask me, should I work at a big company or a startup? Should I look for a seed stage startup or a, you know, pre-IPO startup. And I'll say, you'll get different, there are pros and cons of companies at every stage. So unless you're looking for something really specific, my advice to you isn't pick it by stage. It's pick it by interview at three or four companies. And then at each company, whether it's a 10,000 person company or a 10 person company, think about 
who are the three or four people that I actually work with every day? Are those people that are um, the things I mentioned in investment? Are they, you know, aggressive in good ways? But by that I mean, like, are they driven? Are they warm? Are they humble? Are they ethical? Are they talented? Are they successful? And if you think, look at all those opportunities in front of you, let's say you're a really good engineer and you can kind of have your pick of what company you want to work at. Think about the three or four people you're actually going to work with every day. And if whichever of those companies has the people that are the strongest that you can learn from, go for that company. Don't pick by stage, pick by people. Because the goal, particularly early in your career, the most important thing is you join a team who can accelerate your skill development. And the way to accelerate your skill development is pick the team that has those three or four people that can push you to new heights. Now it's widely known or pretty much everyone should know the success of a company is mostly dependent on the team that is building the idea and hopefully scaling it. So one of the challenges that I've seen companies struggle with, and um, you know, this is, you know, 20 plus years of recruiting experience that they don't have someone in-house focused on recruiting. So what, when do you think is the right time for a company to bring in either an in-house recruiter or, you know, bring in a contract recruiter? It depends on how much hiring you're doing. We, um, I have benefited from using outside recruiters and in-house recruiters. If you're doing a lot of hiring, I like having someone in-house that you can work with every day and can be looking at resumes or LinkedIn profiles in real time. And many times the in-house recruiter, like we've an in-house recruiter, at Lola, his name is Frankie and he's amazing. And we still use outside recruiters because outside recruiters have specialties that the inside recruiter might not have, but the internal recruiter can help coordinate that. And um, again, I guess it depends on the amount of hiring you're doing. If you're looking to hire 10 people in the next year, it probably makes sense to have a contract recruiter help facilitate all of those transactions and all of those meetings. And is it like, even like, you know, so you're just starting out, maybe you raise your seed round and you have to hire, you know, 10 people, bring that person in then, even if you're in the early, early stages of the company or. I tend to like the initial, say five people that have the founder work their network, because one of the nice things about working your network um, is if you can find those five people that either you've worked with in the past, been total stars at prior companies or someone close to you has recommended stars, you get that trust immediately. And when you have a team that has really strong trust in each other, you can execute at a really high speed. But once you have those first five and you're looking to hire the next five or the next 10, I think that's where recruiters can really help. The other area that I do actually like recruiters for is I've often told founders that the thing that will, the most important decision you'll make as a founder is picking your co-founder. And if you can't find a co-founder, let's say you're a business person with an idea and let's say you're building a software company, you need to attack a CTO co-founder, but you don't have anyone. You've been you know, doing all these coffee meetings and cocktail meetings, trying to meet people you can't find on their own. Recruiters actually can be really good at finding co-founders as well. So I like them for that. Um, and then for when you're ready to scale or if when you're looking for a very specific role that a recruiter might have an expertise in. Now, uh, there's only so many hours in the day. Uh, so there's certain ideas that you decide to tackle and you know focus, but are there any, um, any ideas that you've come across lately that you're like, you know what, I, it would be wonderful if some entrepreneur would just uh, take this on. I, I don't have the bandwidth. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> How many hours do you have right now? Right. I actually have notebooks. Um, filled with ideas. 
I'll give you a couple or a few right off the top of my head. So one that I would like is a lot of us have people who contractors who work for us and charge by the hour. And then at the end of the month or some period, you get this bill in the mail. And it's like, whoa, I had no idea they're going to put that many hours into it. What did they actually do? Let's say you're using an attorney to do some work for you. Now, attorneys have their own timekeeping system, their own billing system. And then when they get on a call with you, they record it, a start and a stop. And when they're doing research or documentation, they record a start and a stop. I wish my attorney used software that gave me the option of sending me an email every time they stopped the clock and just said, do you know your attorney just spent four hours on X? At that point, you can say, whoa, 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 whoa. This attorney is heading in the wrong direction. Oh, please, I love this idea. Please do not spend that much time on that. I don't care about that. I'm willing to take that risk. And then rather than waiting to the end of the month to get this enormous bill, you can email your attorney immediately and say, please don't worry about that. I'm willing to take that risk. I don't want to spend thousands and thousands of dollars chasing that really tiny possibility. That is a brilliant idea. Yeah. Like I love my attorney, but when you open that bill, you fall out of your chair. You're like, what? Yeah. And if you knew what they were doing and using their time, yeah, you'd be like, no, 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 no. Focus on this. Not <laughs> So I think that's another amazing. one. Let me see. I'll give you a couple more. Um, so like a lot of people, uh, hundreds of millions of people, I'm obsessed with Instagram. I don't use Facebook anymore, but I love Instagram. However, I follow some really good photography. I like photography a lot. I take a lot of photos. I think I have 100,000 photos on my phone uh, or my Google photos. But um, I follow a lot of photographers. I wish someone created an Instagram for professional photographers. And what I would want is, first of all, full resolution photos. Because if someone is having like a really good Nikon or Canon setup, they're doing really great studio photography or outdoor photography, you'd like to be able to really zoom in and see the full photo. And I'd like to also know about the settings they use for that camera. So I want a little bit more of the metadata, the EXIF data that goes along with each photo. Mm -hmm. And I want much larger photos. So I'd love to see someone create that. Um, another one. So I live on email and I probably, I still, even though we use Slack pretty religiously at Lola, I'm still probably more of an email person than a Slack person because I find that email allows me to just be more thoughtful and sort of deep thoughts and structure and organize my thoughts. But like other people who use a lot of email, spam makes me crazy. And we all, you know, we hit the report spam button in Gmail, whatever we use for our emailer. But sometimes it's a particular spam you get where someone just emails you over and over and over again. And as a user, I would pay money to say, not just report spam, but report spam with some aggression. Like I'm willing to pay one cent to put this person on the blacklist. And then imagine if you had a spam button that everyone could opt into, and let's say it's for Gmail. And what that means is <clears throat> if people pay a penny to report spam that's particularly obnoxious, that person gets blacklisted, then anyone else using that spam button never sees email from that person. And you can even send feedback to the person like once a week or once a month, you could say, be careful, you've been blacklisted 13 times this month. You better watch out and you know, you better take more care about your email policies because you're going to be blacklisted completely. Mm -hmm. if you continue to be as annoying as you have been. Yeah, no, there's a huge opportunity for something like that. And just spam filters in general, like, um, you know, I, I send out, you know, a 
to a large email distribution list and you know, it's all of a sudden, you know, we'll get a bunch of kickbacks and you're like, well, what happened? Like, you know, these people all opt into our email. So it's like, why are we, you know, having problems finding the inbox? So there's so much opportunity for email. Yeah. On the, on the, on the flip side of that, um, imagine an email system where marketer, where a person could say, I'm willing to accept commercial email but it costs a penny to email me or 10 cents mm-hmm. to email me or maybe $10 to email. Maybe Bill Gates will say it costs $100 or $1,000 to his nonprofit to email him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that'd be pretty cool as well for marketers to say, I really want to email CTOs. Like who are the CTOs of all the public software companies in the U.S.? I want to, be able to email them and I'm willing to pay a dollar per email if I can really get the, at that level person. So you kind of want to do both part of it. Either I'm willing to pay to really punish people that are really offensive spammers, or I'm willing to set a price that I'll take email from strangers. Uh, maybe it'll go to my nonprofit, but um, you can do both sides of that equation. That's another great idea to tackle that. Totally. Now, you're also uh, very involved with a number of different charity organizations. So very uh, you know, focused on those efforts as well. Uh, one in particular, though, that I noticed has been you know very... Um, you know, special and meaningful is King Boston. So talk about that organization and, and where things stand as far as what you've been uh, trying to tackle. Yeah, that's a project I started a few years ago. It was back in um, September, 2017. And at that time, I had been really discouraged about the climate that had shifted in the U.S. about racism and nationalists and xenophobia and I was worried about the country. I was visiting the MLK Memorial in San Francisco, a memorial I really love a lot. And I was thinking, I know Martin Luther King Jr. has roots in Boston. He got his PhD here at Boston University. Why don't we have something like of this scale that they have in San Francisco in Boston? And the plane on the way home, I wrote up a Google Doc with my ideas about what this memorial would speak to and, um, you know, kind of the what the goals would be. And I emailed probably a dozen people in the nonprofit world in Boston saying, anyone else have any interest in exploring to do something to celebrate MLK in Boston for his time here. And when I came back, did some research. The other fun fact I learned is that Martin and Coretta Scott met in Boston. They're both students here. She was a student in the England Conservatory and they started their professional careers here. So I wanted to do something to, to memorialize their time together and to think about if they were still alive today and living in Boston, what would they be working on? And therefore, what should we be working on? So we began this process. I um, was lucky to get Reverend Liz Walker, the former newscaster, to sign up as my co-chair. We did 14 community meetings. We went around the city and asked people who wanted to do a major new King initiative to work on racism issues in Boston. What should we work on? What should that look like? And we ended up with a plan that has four components. There's the memorial itself, which will break ground hopefully this January. And that's going to be, I think, spectacular. It'll be located in the Boston Common. And that will cause people to kind of give pause about why is this here, what is this about, you know, what's happening with racism in Boston, what can I do to get involved. We also um, funded a documentary about the King's time together in Boston. We are doing an endowment for the 12 Baptist Church where he used to preach. And then the most audacious part of our plan is creating something in Roxbury called the King Center for Economic Justice. And we're looking at the wealth disparity in Boston and trying to say, what can we do over the coming years, the coming you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years to really shift wealth in Boston 
to represent the diversity of Boston. And that's a problem that I've become really interested in intellectually and morally. Well, incredibly meaningful effort. Like, and it's, I was wondering when the, uh, they're going to start breaking ground on the memorial. So that's uh, hopefully in January. That's right. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, kudos. Um, you've been featured in lots and lots and lots of media, you know, business publications and lots of different outlets. So when you get covered that much, like which ones do you think are most like interesting, unique or special? Which ones do you think about like, wow, that was a little obscure, but that was fun. Yeah, it is funny. Um, I don't know. There was one a year ago where I have a dash cam in my Jeep and I was at a stop sign and I witnessed this crazy scene where a Boston police officer kind of smashed a car into a kid on a little motorbike that he had stolen this motorbike. And it just looked like overly aggressive. And I put it out on my Instagram and then some local media had seen it. And suddenly I was interviewed like at every local media station. And that was just a random occurrence. And, um, Another one that was unusual was back when I created Get Human while I was at Kayak. That got a lot of attention because a lot of people are frustrated with the machines. They call up and press one, press two. Um, and probably the most unusual press I got for that was People Magazine did a story about it. And that was kind of wild. That showed me that, you know, when I've been in, say, the Boston Globe or the New York Times or whatever, I get a certain set of friends who will see that. But as in People Magazine, it was like a whole different set of people. Right would email me and say, wow, I saw him people magazine this week. So that was pretty wild. Yeah. And then when you were um, doing your Uber driving, you were getting a lot of coverage for that too. Yeah. I think Inc. Magazine did a big story about that. And that was something, you know, with each of these things, with the Uber driving, I wasn't doing that to make a statement. I was doing that to learn. I was inspired by John Pepper at Beloco that he had done Uber driving in his Jeep. And I thought that's a cool way to kind of connect with customers and to think about what does it mean to be a service employee? And at Lola, we allow our customers to rate our customer service people. But before I inflicted that on my customer service team, I thought, well, I want to see what it feels like to get rated. And I'm a pretty common Uber passenger, and I want to see how that worked. So yeah, I started Uber driving. And one day I picked up uh, a young woman in Boston who worked in PR, and she somehow recognized me. And so she published a story and that led to a number of people who wanted to cover it, which is kind of funny. So she jumps into your, I think it was your Tesla at the time. That's and, right. Yeah. Like, you Paul English? What? <laughs> You're driving an Uber. <laughs> yeah. That caught me off guard. That's hysterical. I will say I've been spending a lot of time in New York over the last year. I bought a place there because I'm there for business and I like seeing live music. They have a lot of friends in New York and, I will say one of the things I love about New York is no one has ever recognized me. So that's been really fun. <laughs> it is a little embarrassing when I'm at a restaurant and it's not that it happens all the time, but yeah. it's sometimes embarrassing if someone comes up to me and recognizes me. Exactly. Well, Paul, thanks so much for taking the time. And as I mentioned, if uh, you want to hear more of the foundational years of Paul's background and all the companies he started, check out the first podcast that we did, episode 37. But uh, Paul, thanks for taking the time to bring us up to speed on everything else you've been working on. Okay. Thanks a lot, Keith. It's great to catch up with you. Okay. Bye now.
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.